All right, as the kids are going off to kids' church, if you want to be involved in that, as you can see, we've got lots of kids, so uh, I feel like I need to almost like face this direction. <laughs> uh, no, uh, just to echo some of the things that Blake said this morning, um, uh, you know, that they were already mentioned. We're going to be in the book of Acts today, by the way, uh, so if you want to tur- turn to Acts chapter 9, we'll be, <laughs> I see David moved over here. <laughs> We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning, uh, but before, before we get started, uh, you know, just thinking about our church family, I, I wanted to uh, encourage you and kind of comfort you this morning, uh, especially for, for, something, for Mother's Day, and so uh, I wrote something this week that, that I hope encourages you. Uh, I'm just going to read it really quickly. Um, it's a letter to the church on Mother's Day, and uh, to the women who are unable to have children, who are experiencing unexplainable pain and sorrow this morning. We apologize for our insensitivity, and we hurt with you today. In the words of Paul, we pray that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, specifically today. You are loved today. Your identity lies not in childlessness, and you are not defined by infertility. You were uniquely and wonderfully created by a good Father who loves you. So on behalf of all of us who stumble through our words trying to comfort you today, what we mean to say is that we love you, and we thank God for you exactly the way that you are. And there's hope in your sorrows at the feet of Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And so to the motherless or the the motherless child or the childless mother that's here today, Our arms are open wide to you. I can't begin to fathom the immense pain that a day like this brings. And though the weight of the world and sorrows must feel heavy today, I hope that you would draw near to him. Draw near to the one who's defeated death, the one whose scripture promises is the God of all comfort, the one who comforts us in all of our afflictions. We love you, and although we're not the best at communicating it always, We want to walk with you. We want to experience this pain with you. And we want to encourage you today. And to the mothers, those who have experienced the pure joy and excitement and adventure of bearing children, as well as the accompanying sleeplessness, the frustration, the anger, feelings of inadequacy and stress that raising children brings, we hope that you would find rest in Christ today. We want to celebrate motherhood with you, enjoying the good gifts that God gives and celebrating your faithfulness to his calling. But also today, parenthood may feel like a weight that's so heavy on you that you don't know how you can possibly carry it any longer. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is there in those moments. And if that moment is now, he is with you in it. So be comforted today by knowing that your grief and your strife is a means of sanctification. And his grace is extended to you in your weakest and most vulnerable moments. Scripture says that we should cast all of our anxiety on him because he cares for us and he cares for you today. So I just, I just wanted to encourage you with that before we get started. Um, if you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. And when we, when we start reading Scripture today, we'll be in verse 32. But uh, let's, let's just recap uh, what's been going on the last couple of weeks, in case you caught the, uh, the black plague that came through Sulphur Community Church last week, maybe before last Sunday. 
And uh, so throughout the book of Acts so far, uh, we've seen this like reoccurring theme that's continued to, to, that we've been continuing to point out since the first Sunday that we preached Acts. So immediately before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples that they're going to receive power. They'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're going to be his witnesses to Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And just as promised, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. He comes in a mighty way. People are hearing each other speak in their native tongues, and they're able to understand them. And Peter uses this to, to indict these men, to tell them, you, you killed Jesus, and to preach the gospel to them. And about 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom that day. That's what uh, Luke records. And so from then on, we see this, this pattern begin to emerge, right? Like the gospel is preached. Sometimes miracles and signs and wonders are performed. But then the gospel of Jesus is preached. Believers immediately after that are persecuted, whether they're thrown into prison, whether they're brought before the, the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, whether they're stoned like, like we see Stephen was. But the, the believers are persecuted as a result of preaching the gospel. But then what even more miraculously happens is that the gospel continues to multiply even though, even though persecution comes, even though these difficult times are happening. And so then we meet this character named Saul. And we see him at the stoning of Stephen. When people are throwing rocks at Stephen to, to kill him, we see Saul approving of this. People are laying their cloaks at his feet and, he, and he's approving of this. And then it goes on to say that Saul is heavily persecuting the church. He's dragging women and men off to prison for worshiping Jesus. He's, he's, you know, he's doing everything that he can to scatter the church. And the church begins to scatter, but, but the gospel is still being proclaimed. And the, the word of God is continuing to move. The gospel of Jesus is continuing to press on. But Saul's still threatening the church. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit completely flips the script on us. Saul, who was the persecutor of Christians, the one, the one who's been attacking Christians, he has this encounter with Jesus. He's blinded on the road to Damascus as he's going to persecute Christians. He has this encounter with Jesus. And what we see as a result of it is that he begins to faithfully preach the gospel. The persecutor of Christians becomes the one who is persecuted for the name of the gospel. And a good portion of the rest of the Bible gives us evidence to the fact that God is doing work in him. The gospel is multiplying as a direct result of the event that we saw. And so at this point, we, we see this continuous pattern, right, of the gospel being preached, and then persecution coming along, and then the gospel continuing to grow. And so... Um, when we come to our text today, we're going to see something a, a little bit different. We're going we're to see a change in pace. We're going to see something a little different. At this particular time, the church has peace. The church is, is in a time of peace where, the, where no persecution is, is going on. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 31. This is right before what we're going to go into today. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee, oh, excuse me, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church is continuing to spread like wildfire, but for at least a time, there's no persecution. So let's see what happens in our, in our text today. We're going to read the text uh, that we're going to be in today. Chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 32. 
It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was, was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word today. Lord, although uh, it may be challenging at some times, uh, Lord, I, I'm, I'm thankful for the gospel that is preached, for, for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit that we get to see in the book of Acts. And Lord, we pray that today, as, as we see the miracles that you perform, as, you, as we see you taking a paralyzed man and making him whole again, as, as we see you taking someone that's dead and raising them to life, Lord, I pray that we would glorify you in that, that we would, that we would honor you in that, that we would that we would respect the amount of power that Jesus has. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty that we get to see of Jesus Christ in the gospel today. I pray that, uh, God, that if I want to stand in the way of this word, if you have something to speak through me, Lord, I pray that you, would, that you by the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak it. Lord, I pray that you would, that you would put aside all anxiety and all... Uh, fear that I have in, in preaching this, and God, I pray that you would allow me to be able to communicate things correctly, and that your name would be known as a result of what's going on today, as a result of what we see in the, in the text today. God, we love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. And so, uh, I, I kind of, I want to be transparent as we walk through this text today, because I feel that, that many of you may ask some similar questions and may find it difficult to reconcile some of the things that you see in the book of Acts. And so without keeping you here until, until supper time, you know, I want to give you a little bit of my background. And so uh, I, I, grew up going to, I grew up going to church with my parents. Uh, you know, my mom and dad uh, spent hours when I was younger intentionally sharing the gospel with me, communicating the gospel with me from as early as I can remember. And I actually you know, got to see the gospel lived out in their lives. Like, I got to see by their, by their generosity, by the way that they spent their money, by the, um, you know, by, by the way that uh, they produced spiritual fruit, by the way that they served people. Like, I got to see, like, a tangible taste of the gospel. But, but even though the gospel was continued to communicate, you know, was, was communicated to me over and over and over again, it was really difficult for me to, to grasp my depravity like the deadness of my heart. 
And so that was the difficult thing that I, that I couldn't get past. Like, I memorized the Bible verses. I could communicate the gospel with you, and I believed that Jesus was, was the Savior, and I wanted him to be Lord over my life, but I completely missed, like, what I needed to be saved from. Like, like what, what was that? And so when I was about 12 years old, God began to really work on my heart. Like, he began to, to show me some of the nastiness of my heart. He showed me the, the darkness of my thoughts and my depravity and my inability and that the things that I desired were, you know, were, were not really for, for the gospel, were not really to glorify Christ, but were more to, to look at myself. And even as a 12-year-old, they were evil, and, and they were being put uh, before him as, as idols of some sort. And so through the next couple of weeks, uh, Christ just started to reveal himself to me in a way that, that I just, you know, that I had never seen before. He started to reveal himself in a way that was, that was unique to who he was. And, and through that, because of his calling, I, I truly believed in the gospel at that time. And so then God started to show me these things through his word. He started to sanctify me. He started to, to give me the, you know, the willingness and the want to read his word and to study his scriptures. And so I started to grow. He also gave me this, this wonderful community uh, of, you know, my youth pastor was, was very helpful in pointing me to Christ and to leading me and showing me how to, how to communicate the gospel. And then all the people around me that were, that were in our youth group and, and were involved in our church, you know, it, God, God did some amazing things through those people. And, and I'm still thankful for them today. But then, for some reason, uh, I don't even remember the, the exact reason why, we, we started to attend another church about, about a year later. And while I won't mention, like, names or people or anything like that, like, that's not beneficial for us this morning, uh, this is a place, this church was a place where I was subtly exposed to uh, the prosperity gospel. And I know we talk a lot about the prosperity gospel, but, but the prosperity gospel mainly says that as a believer, that you're entitled to this certain material wealth. Like, you're entitled to, to a certain material wealth that you can hold on to. And Jesus' blood, it didn't just atone for our sins, but it also keeps us from living in material poverty. And if you are living in material poverty, then you obviously just don't have enough faith. Like your faith is not strong enough. The prosperity gospel says that, that prayer is just like a tool for, that forces God to do exactly what we want him to do. This gospel is false. It places health and wealth and prosperity above the name of Jesus Christ, above the worship of Jesus. And so I was heavily affected by this at that time. And so in a place where the prosperity gospel is preached, there's typically some things that go along with that. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to knock anything or, or you know, say anything crazy, but something that, that kind of goes hand in hand with that are these, uh, these healing services, Right? These things that, you know, services that were specifically designated for, for like these traveling pastors, these guys that are in high regard among the prosperity gospel community, they come in and they miraculously heal the sick. And so don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying that God can't or that he, that he won't heal people. Like, like we see that happening all the time. But I'm just saying in this case, I knew that even as a kid that there that these displays of healing, like these things that I was seeing, they weren't a means to point to the glory of God. Like they weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't a way to point to the glory of God. Most of the time, they were just meant to exploit people. 
Most of, most of the time, they were just meant to, to, to get people's money and to puff up their own egos. Like, that's, that's kind of the, the background that I'm coming from with this. And so the reason that I'm telling you all this is, is because, you know, sometimes when I see these true miracles, like when I see these, these miracles performed in Scripture, I want to pull back. Even though I know they're legit, even though I know that, that they're by the power of Jesus Christ, I tend to want to stay away from them. I tend to want to push myself back. But as God is showing us, as he's already shown us through the book of John continuously over and over, and now in the book of Acts, he has some pretty amazing things to communicate to us through, through his miracles and through the things that, that we're seeing on a, on a weekly basis almost here. And so if you can identify with me on this, like, like if you have similar background or similar understanding, just hang in there. Like, like look at it from a new perspective and try to see the power that, the, that this passage holds. Try to see the power of Jesus Christ in, that's, that's in this passage today. So let's go back to the text. Uh, it says the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria is experiencing peace. They're being built up constantly. So what do we see happening as a result of that? Verse 32, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So he's going to go to Lydda first. And so uh, this is just one verse, but I kind of want to stop here for a second. It was extremely convicting to me this week. This was something that, that really stuck out to me this week uh, as I was preparing this. Peter has been preaching the gospel faithfully with every opportunity that comes, every opportunity that he gets. He's been persecuted. He's been brought before the authorities. He's been thrown into jail. Like, there's been a lot of things happening to him up to this point because of the preaching of the gospel. And all the while, the church is just continuing to grow. So then there comes this time of peace, right? This is, this is the next step. This, there comes this time of peace. And if I'm there, like, at this point, I'm probably going to kick back for a while. Like, it's been a rough road behind me. So I'm probably, it's probably a good time for the apostles to maybe, like, take a break for a little while, to try to, like, hang out in these cities for a little while and, and keep this peace thing up. But that's not what we see here. That's not what we see in the gospel. What do we see? In, in times of persecution, preaching the gospel in power and being thankful to be counted worthy of the gospel. These people are continuing to preach the gospel. These people, these people preach the gospel through persecution. And then when peace comes, guess what? They find ways to continue to go out, to encourage their brothers and sisters in Christ and to preach the gospel faithfully. So it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if there's persecution or if there's peace. The gospel is moving forward. And so I want to charge you today, like, are, are, we, are we too comfortable? Like, uh, when, we were, when we were in chapter 4 a few weeks ago, uh, David, David was preaching and reminded us of the harsh reality that the, the persecution that comes to the followers of Christ that are in the book of Acts, that's, that's still a major reality for many Christians across the globe today. Like, many are martyred for the gospel, but even if they're not martyred, they're at least denied their basic rights, their basic human rights for preaching the name of Jesus Christ. But that's not us. We're, we're, not, like, we're not persecuted in this manner. And so shouldn't the fact that, that we can share the gospel freely without persecution, shouldn't that propel us to share the gospel freely? And shouldn't our ability to like, meet in church openly, this, this ability that we have to just to come here and to worship, to sing songs together and to, and to hear the word of God preached, 
Shouldn't that compel us to love and to care for our brothers and sisters in our community groups and to care for those people within our communities? Like, that's just something that, that's been, you know, poor, that Christ has been showing me this week. Like, I'm continuing to pray that God's going to open up our eyes, that he would open up our eyes to the opportunities that we are given in our context. Like, we're in a time of peace. And so what he, what he says in peace is move forward with the gospel, advance the gospel. So Peter is, is traveling, and he's visiting and encouraging believers. He's preaching the gospel with any opportunity that he can leverage. And in this narrative, he's going to go two places. He goes to Lydda, and then he goes to Joppa. And we're going to see, though they're two different miracles, though the two different miracles are performed, we're going to see that the same pattern takes place throughout. There's repetition in this. And I think Luke wants us to see that today. So in verse 32, uh, again, it says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So Peter goes into Lydda, and he somehow finds this man named Aeneas. This guy's been paralyzed for eight years. He's been laying on his back in his bed for eight years. Can you imagine the, the existence that's going on here? This guy's brain is still fully functional, but he has no ability to move. He has every part of his day planned out for him, which means that he relies on someone else for every single thing that he does. Somebody probably has to give him something to drink many times a day. They have to feed him. They have to bring him to the bathroom. Like All of these things are going on for this guy. So even more than that, this man, he, he's probably isolated from people. Like, he, like you can't really get out if you're, if you're bedridden, you know? So he's isolated from people besides his family, and he's probably not able to go anywhere or do anything. So this is a sad existence. Like, this is a sad place to be. This is a terrible place to be. But the wonderful, overarching truth that I want you to see is that Jesus has a way of turning things around. And we're going to see it twice today. He has a way of turning things around, flipping things upside down. He is not predictable. He is not this mundane person who's just going to sit back. He is exciting. He makes things new. He brings new life, and he turns nothing into something. He turns sorrow into hope in this case. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Now get up and make your bed. You're not staying here any longer. And so by the power of Jesus Christ, this man is healed. He takes, Peter has taken his cue directly from what he's already seen from Jesus. Directly from what he sees from Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And then these men, they come up to bring their friend who is also a paralytic. He was paralyzed. And before uh, they're bringing him before Jesus, but they, they can't seem to get to him, and so they have to lower him in through the roof. And so they lower him in, and what does Jesus say in Luke chapter 5, verse 24? He tells the man, he commands the man, he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Peter effectively says the same thing here. Make your bed. This bed is not going to confine you any longer. And the man obeys. He gets up, and Scripture says that the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. 
Remember that. That's, what, that's the pattern that we're going to see. We're going to see these miracles happen and then people turn to the Lord as a result. And so some, uh, some of the commentaries that I was reading say that uh, based on the pattern that we see in Acts up to this point, like the pattern that we see in chapter 3 in a lot of different places, uh, we can believe that the gospel was probably preached by Peter. Like, uh, like after this, this miracle had happened, the gospel was probably preached as a result of that, and then people, became, and then people came to, to be saved. People trusted in Christ. But what Luke thought was significant was that people saw the miracle that Peter had performed through the power of Jesus. And people believed on him and became followers of Christ. That's what we want you to get from there. That's what, that's what I want you to see from this. So now let's see, so now let's see the, the next step. Let's see what's going on in Joppa. In verse 36, it says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And so we learn a little bit about this person that, that lives in Joppa, this person, Tabitha or Dorcas. First, Joppa, uh, just, to, just to give you, for, for you guys that are geographical people uh, like I am, Joppa is a, is a port city. It's a city on the Mediterranean Sea. And, and its significance in this story is that it's about 10 miles northwest of Lydda, where, where Peter is right now. And just, just to give you a little, a little background on what's going on, uh, Joppa is actually... Uh, if you know the, the city of Tel Aviv today, it's, it's on the outskirts of there and still serves as a, as a port to Tel Aviv in, in Israel in modern days. And so uh, there's, this, there's this disciple there and by the name of Tabitha. That's her name in Aramaic, the language that, that they spoke, which translated into the Greek means Dorcas. And I'm thinking, man, that's some bad luck. Like, that's a terrible name. What kind of name is Dorcas? And then I started looking it up to, to kind of see what it meant, and it means gazelle. So it's like, man, Dorcas is translated to mean this, this majestic and wonderful and beautiful animal. So I, I guess, I don't know, maybe the name's not off the table. If Heather, Heather, if you're listening to this, uh, the name's not quite off the table for our kids in the future, I guess, uh, just because it means gazelle. So... <laughs> So uh, anyway, it's evident that this Tabitha is a woman that's a believer. The, t- the text says that she's, that she's a disciple of Jesus Christ. That it's evident to those in her community that this is the case. Like she's one that's constantly, she's caring for others. She's doing the things that, um, she's doing good works and she's caring for the mar- marginalized. And we see, we're going to see that even more so in a few minutes. She's, she's the one that is constantly caring for people. So verse 37 says, In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So this woman who's done so much for her community as a follower of Jesus, she gets sick and she dies, just like that. And when she dies, it was, it was, when she died, it was you know, common in Jewish culture that the first step was to, to ceremonially clean the body, right? They want to ceremonially clean the body. But what was not common about this was that they laid her in an upper room. This was like a, a living room of sorts. This was a living space. And dead people weren't supposed to be there. And the Jews actually, you know, from Jewish customs, they actually did their best to try to bury people as quickly as possible. I imagine the stench of, of death would get 
get bad pretty quickly. So they did their best to bury people as quickly as possible. But these people, they expected something different to come out of this situation. And it's evident because word gets around that Peter is in Lydda. And I guess, if I had to guess, it's probably because he just made a man that was paralyzed walk. Like, that's, that's things that, you know, people get to talking about, you know. So people are probably getting to talking about this, and then they send for him immediately to go to Lydda to get him to say, hey, Peter, please come to us now. Come to us without delay. Verse 39, so Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Again, Peter is going to get his cues directly from Jesus. He's going, to, he's going to follow directly in the footsteps of Jesus and what he's already seen. Look back, at me, look back with me really quickly to Mark chapter 5. We see this man named Jairus. He was the ruler of the synagogue. He has a daughter that has just died, and he, and he gets Jesus to come in. He gets Jesus to come and, and hopefully to heal her. And when, we, and when we get this account, we, we see that Peter and John and James are actually going in with him. So Peter's there at that time. Peter's getting to see this firsthand. They get to see what Jesus is about to do. So in Mark chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 38, it says, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And when they were immediately... And they were immediately overcome with amazement. So Peter knows that he has been given the power and the authority of Jesus to heal. And so he does almost exactly as he's seen it done before, right? He's seen this happen before. He's been in this situation before. The, win- the widows that Tabitha served, they were there. They were giving their testament to, to who Tabitha was. They were showing the garments that Tabitha had made them out of the goodness of her heart. But Peter puts them all outside. And then he kneels down and he prays in Ara- he prays and then, and then he says in Aramaic he says Tabitha kumi which is only one letter different than what Jesus actually said to command Tyrus's, to command Jairus's daughter Talitha kumi one letter different so Peter does exactly what he's already seen Jesus do and by the power of Jesus she's brought back to life as Peter gives her his hand and he raises her up that's amazing. And if I'm going to be honest with myself and with you, because of the deception and some of the manipulation that I've experienced when it, when it comes to, to miracles, you know, things that are associated with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, I struggle with this. I struggle with becoming very numb to passages in Scripture like this. Like, that, that's something that, that I really struggle with. 
And so if you think like this or if you've experienced this like me, I hope that you can see the, the powerful message that Luke wants to record to us today, the, that you can see what, what Luke's trying to communicate to us from these miracles. What can we learn from these miracles? He's already shown us signs and wonders throughout the book of Acts, right? What is he trying to communicate through those, and what is he trying to communicate through these? I think there's three things that, that we can really learn and we can grab onto as, as we look at the miracles that we see in this, in this passage. Number one, I think in this passage directly, it's reinforcing. These miracles are, are, are continuing to reinforce the authenticity of Peter's apostleship. Like, Jesus is putting his yes on Peter. He's saying, yes, he is a follower of mine, and all the people are able to see that. Um, Jesus authenticates his own ministry doing this. He, he says in, in Luke chapter 7, um, uh, looking, at, looking at Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist uh, sends two of his disciples to Jesus, right? And he's asking them. He, he wants his disciples to ask Jesus, like, look, are you, are you really the Messiah? Like, are, are you the one that is to come? Like, you tell us all these things about yourself. You tell us uh, you're, you're performing these signs and wonder, like, are you the one? Are you the one that I should be looking for? And Jesus responds by saying this. He tells them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So in short, John, lift your eyes up, see what's going on. Jesus' ministry, his ministry was authenticated by his signs and by his wonders, by the things, by the things that he was doing. He is authentic. Nobody has the power or authority that Jesus has. Nobody has power like that, and it's recognizable. And then a little later, in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples with power and authority over all demons. He tells them that they have power and authority over demons, that they can cure diseases, to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal people. And then he sends out 72 more in the next chapter, in chapter 10, to heal the sick and to proclaim the kingdom of God is near. That's what they're there to do. And this healing power, this healing power that we see, the, the mighty power that was in Jesus is, is seen only in Jesus' ministry and now through the book of Acts. And so Peter's authority is given by Jesus and is being constantly and constantly and constantly affirmed. That's the first thing that he wants us to see. Number two, these miracles continue to demonstrate the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what this is today. When Jesus, when Jesus commissions his disciples, we talk about the Great Commission a lot. When he, demis, when he commissions his disciples, he begins with his authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The literal word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. He dwelt among men. He lived a life in perfect obedience to the Father. He was the one that gave up his life. He did it on his own authority. He said that over and over. No one can take my life from me, but I give it up freely. He did this on his own authority. He atoned for sin. He took our place. He atoned for our sin, and he perfectly fulfilled all of the prophecy that we see in the Old Testament. And then, after he died, he rose from the grave, 
victorious forever over death. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so Peter's seen this. He knows it to be true. A man's laying paralyzed in his bed. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And then he gets up and walks. That's powerful. A woman gets sick and dies. He puts everyone outside and he prays to the one who has the power. He does not have the power. He does not possess the power. I hope it's obvious to you at this point. He doesn't possess this power to do anything apart from the works of Jesus Christ, apart from who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ overcame death. And number three, these miracles, they, they point people toward belief and toward worship. They point, toward, they point people toward belief and worship of the true king. And they give us a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. They give us a glimpse forward into what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And so Luke wants us to see this, right? Aeneas, this paralyzed man, he's healed. And then what do we see next? All of the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. That's the result. Tabitha's dead, and and she's brought back to life. And what happens next? It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. That's the purpose. We get to see this, and we get to be encouraged by the movement. Like the Holy Spirit is strategically placing people to spread farther and farther and farther throughout this area to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel, calling people to repentance, making his name known and making disciples. He's doing this powerfully, and he's, he's bringing this into being. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, in an article that I was reading this week, he describes it like this. He says, miracles lead not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe and wonder. Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, and to raise the dead. Why? We modern people think of miracles as a suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. So as believers, we can hope for the day that when we can worship him forever and all the effects of sin, all the nastiness that we see, including death and pain and suffering, that's going to give way to eternal glory. We have hope in that. Before the fall, man could enjoy life without these horrible effects. And Jesus is pointing us toward the ushering in of a new kingdom, his kingdom that he continued to talk about through the book of John, where sin is no longer going to bind us anymore, where we're freed to kneel at the feet of Jesus for eternity. That's what his miracles are doing here. They're pointing us toward a hope of the future. They're pointing us toward toward what we see, what we're going to see in the kingdom of God. And they point us toward worship. So if you're like me, I, I, I just pray that you would hope God, that I just, I just hope that God would allow you to be able to praise God. Like when you see these miracles and signs, when you see these things happening in Scripture, I pray that you would be able to worship Him because of it. And there's a good chance that today we, we probably won't see the amount of miracles that were happening at that time. Like that was specific to that specific time. You know, that was a, that was those were things that were happening to authenticate the ministry of, the, of those apostles, so we may not see the miracles like that. But I also see throughout Scripture and through my experiences that God has a way of proclaiming His glory in some of the most unlikely and unusual ways. And you know this to be true. 
We've seen this happen. I hope that what you can see through Jesus today is not just a, a predictable, mundane, authoritarian ruler over us. Like he changes things up. He brings about newness of life. He transforms people. We see him transform people. We are, full, we are a room full of people that have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that you can see that today. He's not a boring ruler that's this guidebook to life. He's not the one telling you the rules to live by and the rules not to live by only. He is good. He's much alive today. He is alive within us. And if you look closely, you can see this very clearly throughout, throughout everything that we're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Jesus is alive today. I, hope that, I know we continue to preach that, but I hope that you understand that. And instead of like abusing this passage and, and telling you that you should do as Peter does and, and perform these miracles and expect to see these miracles in your life, and instead of telling you that if you, if you don't see these miraculous signs and wonders that your faith is not strong enough, your faith is weak, and that you need to increase your faith, I don't want to do that today. I believe that God is, is most concerned and cares about the posture of our hearts. He cares where our hearts are. Where are, where are your heart, where's your heart today? Where are you right now? Are you submitting to him? Like, do you, do you worship him in the everyday grind? Like, like the times when we don't see the supernatural happening frequently, like the times when, when, when it just seems like, like the mundane, normal way of life, do we trust that he is who he says he is? That like Romans 1 says, that he is, that, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Like, do we believe that he can save in that way? Do we have hope for tomorrow and peace? Like, when we see miracles like this throughout Scripture, do we, does that give us hope to look forward into the future of what, what his kingdom is going to be like? Does that give us peace? Does that allow us to be able to, to grow? And, and do we have peace when things don't, don't look the way that we think they should look or when they're not so good around us? And, you know, on the flip side of that also, are we, are we looking for ways that God is working supernaturally? in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and in our workplaces. Like, this is happening. Although we may not always recognize them as as signs and wonders and miracles, God is doing amazing things in our neighborhood, and especially in the global context right now. We talk about this all the time. We pray that God would, would be able to show you what He's doing in this community, that He would show you what's going on, and that you would find a way to be a part of His work. So I encourage you today... Look, pray to God, ask him, ask him to reveal these things to you, ask him to show you where he's moving in this community and become a part of that. And so I'm praying for the, for the Holy Spirit to do a work in the people of Sulphur Community Church. Like that's, that's what I'm praying for this morning, and much like we see in the people of Acts. And so let's look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31 one more time. I think we can draw something out of this. It says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Why was there peace? How were they able to be built up? It says, Walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. The church is multiplying. They're they're walking in fear of the Lord. These people care about God's commands. They want to please him, and they love him deeply because he's their father. They love him with the love that a a child has for their father. And they can stand in the face of any barriers or any persecution because they are comforted by the Holy Spirit. 
Christ is the only one that can bring words like fear and comfort together. He is the only one that can draw that together. He went to the cross in our place. We deserve death. We deserve death. But he took our place. He suffered on the cross in our place as a sacrifice for us to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. He cleansed us from our, from our evil and our unrighteousness, and he allows us to have a relationship with God now. Like he, he made straight the path for us to where we could have a relationship with God. He has authority over all things in the universe. And he does some of the most powerful things through the least likely candidates. And if you've not done so today, I pray that you would, hope, I pray that you would place your hope in Jesus Christ. That as you see the miracles that are being performed, that, that as you see what he's doing, bringing people to his name and, and allowing people to worship him and to glorify him, that you would know him today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the, for the glory of, of the gospel. God, I thank you for the preaching and, and teaching of your word, Lord. I, I thank you that you show us continuously throughout scripture that, that you're bringing people to yourself through, through hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel. And Lord, I thank you for for the miracles that you show continuously, to authenticate your ministries, to, to, show your, to put your power on display, to flex for the people that are, that are around you, God, so that they can see you and so that they can glorify you. Lord, I pray that when we look at miracles that we, that we wouldn't be jaded or that we wouldn't see things um, through skepticism, but Lord, that we would see Jesus that we would see him doing miraculous things in ways that we can't explain and that those things would draw our unbelieving friends and the, and the people who don't know Jesus. They would draw him to you, that they would draw them to you. Jesus, our, our hope is in you. We don't have the ability to do anything apart from you. And so we lay that down to you today. God, I pray that if there's, if there's people within our congregation that have heard the gospel, that have continued to hear the gospel over and over and over, that you would draw them to yourself. That you would allow them to see that you have authority over all. And that because of that authority and because of who you are, you are worthy to be praised. Jesus, just as we're about to sing in a few minutes, God, we, we, we want to see you lifted high. We want to see you praised. Lord, let our worship be, be sweet in your ears this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.